Yeah, good morning, guys. So, yeah, my name's Lucas Myers. I'm on staff with HO Church Cincinnati. I'm here to bring the word to you guys today. But before we get into this message, I have a question for you guys. Has anyone in this room ever been a resident advisor or an RA? And if you have been, please raise your hand. I figured. I figured. Oh, we have one. That's a miracle. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for raising your hand. I, too, have been a resident advisor. I was an RA for one year in UPA, my sophomore year of college. Um, and I was not expecting a lot of people this morning to raise their hands. But I appreciate you. That's pretty cool. Um, so, yeah, there's not really a lot of RAs or former RAs in this room because being an RA isn't really much fun. It's not very much fun. Even with the free room and board and $20 a week, it's not really worth it. You know, there's a lot of ending parties, being a disruption to others who are having fun. You know, late night calls saying, hey, I need some help to get into my room, and you have to get up at 3 a.m. to help them. It's not very fun. And there's a lot of tension between roommates. You know, with being an RA, you're always signing up to be a mediator as well between two or more involved in conflict. So personally, I didn't ever want to step into a place of mediation. That was not very fun to me. It was quite scary, actually, very intimidating. I didn't really want to step into a place of mediation. And even when the people who ask for an RA to mediate, they don't want to be a part of these situations either. They're not very fun. But we all know that they're good and they're much needed. So why do RAs even need to step into a place of mediation? Well, it's because there is some conflict between two or more parties involved. And I believe that we all have a spiritual conflict that requires mediation. And that spiritual conflict is sin and brokenness. And in this place of mediation, the hope is for a space of restoration, a space of reconciliation, and a space for relationship. For both parties to draw near to one another. And as I was thinking about being a mediator, as that was just revolving around my mind, I was super curious about what the biblical definition of a mediator was. So it'll be up on the screen. But it says, one who stands between two or more parties and whose function is to bring these parties into contact or nearer to each other, resulting in unity or reconciliation. Okay, it's a pretty simple definition. Pretty cool. Makes sense. And as I was reading that and, and even just meditating on that definition, it reminded me so much of the role of a priest in the Bible. And so I looked up the biblical definition of a priest. So this is the biblical definition of a priest. One who is duly authorized to minister in sacred things, particularly to offer sacrifices at the altar, and who acts as a mediator between men and God. Okay, so we see some similarities here between the biblical definition of a priest and the biblical definition of a mediator, they play very similar roles. And I believe ultimately that biblical mediators and biblical priests, they play a special role. And that role is to reconcile us, broken and sinful man, to God, perfect creator, so that we may draw near to him. And so today, in Genesis 14, we'll get to find more about why a biblical mediator or priest is really, really important and why our souls truly yearn for and need a mediator. And we're going to experience more of this awesome truth through this passage in a mysterious biblical character who is a priest and who also displays his efforts as a mediator, which we'll find about later. But before getting into this passage today, I want to encourage you guys to take in God's word. Now we're going to be reading a lot of scripture today, and we're going to be able to meditate on it together. Like, we're, we're here to hear the word of God. And it's going to be a lot of rich, meaningful, and awesome scripture. And it's all going to point to King Jesus. It's all going to point to King Jesus. And there's not going to be much practical application. But that's okay. That's okay. So let, let's walk out of church today fed by God's word. Let's be hungry and eager to receive God's word and to walk away in awe and wonder of who he truly is, of how good our God is as we faithfully draw near to him. So let me pray. God, just thank you so much for this morning. Thank you that we can come together, um, yeah, and just worship you. You're so worthy. 
Great be your name, Lord. You are great. You are awesome. You're so faithful to us. And I just pray that we would just be faithful to you, that we would respond today to draw near to you, to fall more in love with you, to take on the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You know, I, I just pray together that we would grow in the fear of you, Lord, to be overwhelmed with wonder before the greatness of yourself, God, and your eternal love. So, Lord, we thank you that you love us, that you lavish your love on us every single day, every single moment that we walk on this earth. And I just pray that we would all walk away more and more in love with you because you are worthy, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We pray this all in your awesome name. Amen. So cool. So yeah, we're going to be flipping to Genesis 14 today as we continue our series in Genesis. So if you guys want to flip your Bibles open to that, that would be great. It will also be on the screen. But we're going to start in verse 1. So it says this. In those days of King Amraphel of Shinar, King Arioch of Elisar, King Kedolamer of Elam, and King Tidal of Goim waged war against King Bera of Sodom, King Bersha of Gomorrah, King Shinab of Adma, and King Shemeber of Zeboim, as well as the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. All of these came as allies to the Sidim Valley, that is, the Dead Sea. Okay, all of these names are completely, like, I don't, I don't know any of these guys. You know, obviously, they're important, but they're, they're a lot of random names. We probably don't know the, these, the background of these guys, but that's okay. Um, but what we can see here from these first three verses is simply three kings. They're coming together in a confederation, and they're coming against these five other kings. So there is a war that's being waged here. And I just want to let you guys know that this is 14 years prior to the events that we're going to be reading about later in this passage. So let's continue into verse 4. They were subject to Kedolamer, who was the king, for 12 years. But in the 13th year, they rebelled. Okay, so these five kings, they rebelled against the three. And Kedolamer was a leading king for this confederation of three kings. And they later became four kings, which we'll, we'll read about. But simply here, these five kings, they're, they're refusing to pay tribute after 13 years to these confederation of kings. This is a simple issue of taxation. People not wanting to pay taxes. And so what do they do? They wage war. <laughs> I don't want to pay taxes. All right, we're going to have war. And so the people who lived in Canaan in the days of Abram, they were interested in conquest and dominion. And a lot of what we even see in, in today's world, we, we see this happening all over the world. Even if we don't see this here necessarily in America, this is happening even today. And so this confederation of kings, they rebelled against Kedolamer. They wanted to be free from his dominion. So that, yes, this was an issue of taxation, and these five kings were ready to start keeping everything for themselves instead of paying money to this king Kedolamer and the others. So let's look into verses 5 through 7. In the fourteenth year, Kedolamer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim, and Ashtoreth, Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Emim and Shava Kiriathiam, and the Horites in the mountains of Seir, as far as El Paran by the wilderness. Then they came back to invade En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they defeated the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who lived in Hazazan Tamar. Okay, lots of more confusing names. That's okay. I'm going to summarize this for you. So on their way to punish these five kings who rebelled, they actually started to conquer more people. So we see that these three kings so far, they are very militant. They're very strong forces in their conquering. And so even more, they're getting these other city-states to pay tribute to them. Even more tax money coming into their banks. So let's look and see what happens. 8 through 10. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and lined up for battle in the Sidim Valley against king Kedulamer of Elam, king Tadal of Goim, king Amraphal of Shinar, and king Arioch of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now the Sidon Valley contained many asphalt pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, but the rest fled to the mountains. Okay. 
So King Amraphel was mentioned in verse 1 of this passage. He has now joined the confederation of the three kings, now making them four against five. And the four kings have defeated the five that waged war against them. So that's what we see here in these three verses. So let's see what they took. Verses 11 and 12. The four kings took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and went on. They also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, for he was living in Sodom, and they went on. Okay, so yes, as the four kings aligned, they defeated the five kings aligned, and they also took a ton of goods. So they were even, you know, getting a ton of plunger from this, this mission of conquering these, these kings. But they also took a pretty important character in the Bible that we talked a lot about last week with, with Grant's sermon. And his name's Lot. He's, he's Abram's nephew. And previously in Genesis, thir- Genesis 13, we read about Lot separating himself from Abram and settling in Sodom. So yes, they, they took over the king of Sodom. They took Lot with them. And because Lot was Abram's nephew, the group of four kings therefore involved Abram. And what I mean by that is ju- just imagine your, your parents one day. Like, I mean, my parents are here. They could probably imagine themselves. It's like, imagine kid, your kid comes home, and they're just, like, getting bullied at school. They're getting picked on at recess. Like, that's, that's going to involve the parents. Like, the parents are going to be involved in situations like that. That, that was Abram with, with Lot. His nephew was captured. His nephew was taken. So he's going to step in and be involved in this situation. Even though this is really uncomfortable, this is really hard, and this is not really fun. So that's the type of man that Abram was. He was a man of honor, and he was a guardian of his family. And so no question, he would fight for his nephew's life and safety. So let's see Abram's response. Genesis 14, 13 through 14. One of the survivors came and told Abram the Hebrew, who lived near the oaks belonging to Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and the brother of Aner. They were bound by a treaty with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled 318 trained men, born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. Okay, this is really cool. This is the first time in the Bible that the word Hebrew has been introduced. You know, and it was probably a reference to the fact that Abram had, had came from beyond the Euphrates River and he had passed over to the land of Canaan. And so the word Hebrew, it actually comes from a root that means passed over. And so as Abram passed over to Canaan. That's probably why Abram is called a Hebrew here. And Abram was also a man that came from beyond, and that is also another meaning of the word Hebrew, someone that comes from beyond. So that's just really cool. I mean, that's just awesome. The first, first uh, introduction of, of the word Hebrew in the Bible, and Abram is introduced as a Hebrew. So Abram also had an army of 318 trained men. Okay, that's pretty cool. His great and grand army reveals that Abram was pretty wealthy. He's a pretty influential person. And if you can go and gather 318 men who are all trained in battle to go and pursue very powerful kings who conquer lots of people, then you must be a pretty influential, wealthy, wise, incredible individual. So this is, this is Abram's character. It's, it's being revealed simply through him collecting these men who are trained to go pursue these kings and lots. And so Abram and his army pursued the confederacy of the four kings who took Lot for a long distance to the north as far as Dan. And Dan is not far from the northern border of Israel. I was looking this up. It's, it's crazy how long this is. This is about 160 miles of traveling. That is, there's no cars back then. There's no, I don't know, I don't even know if there's buggies, but they were probably on foot. So that's a lot. So I even want to encourage you to go run 6.1025 marathons while engaging in battle with a confederacy of kings and armies. That's a lot to rescue a man named Lot. So obviously, Abram wasn't just going to recover Lot, but Lot was a key motivation for Abram pursuing these these four kings. And to be honest, I don't know how Abram collected 318 trained soldiers, and we certainly don't know how many soldiers the the confederacy of the four kings had, but we do know that they were powerful conquerors. And so we do know that in this passage that, that it, it still seems impossible for 318 trained men to go pursue these, these four kings and to get Lot back and, 
and everything that they had taken. So this seems impossible. So let's see what happens. Verse 15. And he and his servants deployed against them by night, defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah to the north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also his relative Lot and his goods, as well as the woman and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kedolamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out and to meet him in the Shiva Valley, that is the king's valley. Okay, so Abram in his faith and obedience succeeded in rescuing Lot, recovering all the plunger of goods seized by the partnership of the four kings here. That's awesome. And I want to bring us to a relatable story that we can actually connect this to in this account of Abram rescuing his nephew Lot. I want to dig deep here with you guys. Lot was undeserving of his uncle's love. He was undeserving of his uncle's grace and also his rescue. And like Lot, we as followers of Christ were those often places of brokenness and places of sin completely separated from God. But as followers of Christ, we were rescued by the one who left his safety, throne, comfort, and happiness. Our kinsman redeemer went to great trouble and distance, just like Abram. And with his courage, he defeated the mighty enemy that had captured our souls, placing us in bondage to our sin. And our rescuer took all the enemy's spoils as Abram did. You know, it's crazy that even as Abram and Lot had been separated, this wouldn't stop Abram from redeeming his nephew Lot. This reminds me of Jesus' love for us described in Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not even Lot going to another place could separate him from Abram and his love. How much more us with Jesus' love that we wouldn't be separated from him. No sin, no shame, no acts of condemnation that we can commit can ever separate us from the love of God. This, this is the story that's being revealed here between Abram and Lot is we get to see even more a picture of our beautiful and awesome, perfect Lord and Savior and his love for us, that he will go the distance for us, that nothing can separate us from his love. And just as Abram felt the need to be involved, Jesus felt the need to be involved with us to represent us and to bring us back to him. This is the gospel. And God has painted us a picture through Abram, pointing us to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. You know, we see Abram's faith preserving Lot here today. Just as much as Jesus' perfect righteousness and blood that he shed for us on the cross preserves us once and for all time. This rescue and victory Abram and his troops experienced, it displayed the power of God for those who have faith in God. This was a miracle. Unfortunately, as we continue to read our Bibles, we're going to see more miracles like this, where things seem to be impossible, but God proves his faithfulness and makes it possible. It's awesome. God's power is shining through God's people in circumstances that seem impossible to overcome. So let's continue reading in our passage. Verse 18. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Okay, crazy war just happened, lots of traveling. And then this guy Melchizedek shows up. Who the heck is Melchizedek? We have no idea of where Melchizedek came from, how he came to be in canon, how he came to be a worshiper and priest of the one true God, Yahweh, and how Abram came to know about him. We only know that he was a real person and that he was there. He was present. And so maybe you guys are questioning, like, hey, like, he's a priest. What's a priest? A lot of what we know about priests are from the Levitical priesthood. But the Levitical priesthood wasn't even placed into the system until the days of Moses and Aaron. And so I want to encourage you guys, if you'd want to look more into that on your own time, give Hebrews 9, 1 through 10 a read. It's very simple and it's very straightforward and it's really good. Uh, but we're not going to go much into that today. We don't have time. But we're going to go much into Melchizedek. 
So here's what we can know about Melchizedek. And so the name Melchizedek, it actually means king of righteousness. Okay, that's a pretty important name. And he's also the king of Salem, which means king of peace. You know, I see, even as I'm reflecting, that Jesus was also a king of righteousness and a king of peace. You know, Melchizedek, he was a worshiper, and he was a priest of the one true God, Yahweh, ruling over the original Jerusalem. So Salem is the original Jerusalem. That's weird to say, original Jerusalem. Um, And he was uniquely a priest and a king. So history shows in the Bible that it's often dangerous to combine religious and civic authority. You know, God forbade the kings of Israel to be priests, and he forbade the priests to be kings. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, King Uzziah tried to become a priest, and God struck him with leprosy. So obviously we see here in this passage that Melchizedek was an exception to be a king and a priest. Well, also another exception was Christ. Jesus Christ was a king and a priest. So yeah, Melchizedek, he was a priest of God Most High. God Most High in Hebrew is El Elyon, which just means highest God. So at the time, lots of gods were being worshipped, false idols, these, these, these images that people were worshipping. Well, El Elyon is another way to say that God is supreme. He is the supreme being. Yahweh is number one. He is supreme. He's the only God. And so when Melchizedek says God most high, he's saying Yahweh is supreme. So Melchizedek is an example of a worshiper of the true God. Even being a priest of God most high, yet not related to Abram. He wasn't related to Abram. Or he was not even related to any of the other covenant people that we talked about in the series This man is a divine ball of mystery. Some even believe that he may be Jesus in the flesh, pre-Bethlehem. And we only get three verses about his life. This is crazy. You would see in in Melchizedek's life that he was also very generous in bringing out bread and wine. And he served Abram after a long journey of pursuing kings to get Lot back. You know, perhaps Melchizedek even here was uh, serving them in a manner of looking forward to our redeeming sacrifice in Jesus as the bread and wine of Passover and the Lord's table look at our our redeeming sacrifice in Christ. Could this be a foreshadow to what is to come? I don't know. I think so. And Melchizedek, being priest of God Most High, he did two things. He blessed Abram and he blessed God. This is a first He blessed Abram and he blessed God. Melchizedek showed that a priest must connect with both man and God and has a ministry to both man and God. This seems to be an image of the type of biblical mediator and priest that we described at the beginning of the sermon. So though Melchizedek seems like an obscure figure, he's in fact an important Old Testament person. And he's mentioned in an important psalm, Psalm 110. And I'm only going to read two verses for you guys. Verses 1 and verse 4. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever, according to the pattern of Melchizedek. Okay, it's a pretty important psalm. You know, this remarkable psalm, it's one of the Old Testament portions most quoted in the New Testament, with roughly 27 direct quotations or allusions. So the Lord here is Jehovah, Yahweh, the existing one. This is the proper name for God. And he's speaking to my Lord, which is Adonai, a parallel to Yahweh, being Lord. And so we can conclude here that God the Father is having a conversation with God the Son. And in this psalm, God is permitting David a mortal ear to hear and a human pen to record his converse with his co-equal son. God is telling another personage who is greater than David to sit at God's right hand until God makes this person's enemies his footstool to the person's feet. And this person can only be the divine Messiah, Jesus Christ. 
This points to the fulfillment of the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent, mentioned in Genesis 3.15, as the Lord makes my Lord and his enemies his footstool. And verse 4 says that the priesthood of the Messiah is a priesthood according to the pattern of Melchizedek that we see in Genesis 14, as opposed to being the pattern of Aaron, the Levitical priesthood in time of Moses. Hebrews 7 mentions this, and we're going to go deeper into that later. But what we can know from this is that the Lord, Jehovah, he double swears with an oath that the Messiah, God the Son, would have an eternal priesthood. That he would be priest forever. And that it was going to be after the pattern of Melchizedek. And so Melchizedek and Messiah will both have a unique role and a unique priesthood. And we get to see the uniqueness of Jesus' priesthood through the life of Melchizedek. And we're going to talk about that later. But if you haven't noticed already, we see a lot of similarities between Melchizedek and Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. And we're all yearning for a priest like Melchizedek to stand between us and God. But even more, a high priest in Jesus perfectly man and perfectly God, who could relate to both parties as a perfect mediator. And we're going to go more into that later, but I just want to just put that seed into your mind, that Jesus is that perfect mediator. And so we're going to go back to Genesis 14 and, and finish the end of uh, verse 20 real quick, because this is a really cool thing that, that we find here, is that Abram, he gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything. Not just his bi-weekly earnings. You know, this is the Bible's first introduction of a tithe. If you've heard of tithing, some people, uh, most people will give a tenth of their earnings or a tenth of their assets. Well, here, Melchizedek, he is actually giving a tenth of everything. And these are, these are not his income. This is his assets that he's giving. And so Melchizedek, he blessed Abram out of his resources with bread and wine and a blessing from God Most High. And Abram, he blesses Melchizedek out of his own. And so what we see here is that this is a great attitude for a community of believers to be pursuing mutual blessing and mutual encouragement. I think this is something that we can really take away just from simply Abram giving, but Melchizedek gave as well. And, and we can also give out of the abundance of our hearts to each other as we mutually bless each other in the body of Christ and so let's wrap up Genesis 14 in verse 21 through 24. It says, Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that belongs to you, so you can never say, I made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the servants have eaten. But as for the share of the men who came with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamer, they can take their share. Okay, so here we see that the king of Sodom, he wanted to reward Abram for all he did in recovering what was taken by the partnership of the four kings. And he offered Abram a tremendous amount of plunder. Yet, Abram wouldn't take any of that plunder or any of the spoil that was taken from Sodom and Gomorrah recovered. And this was because Abram had made an oath to God Most High a title of God that he had heard Melchizedek using. And so it seems like here that we can even conclude that Melchizedek had, a, had an extreme impact, an encouraging impact on Abram and his faith in the Lord. And so also, Abram, he doesn't take from the king of Sodom because of what he's already received from God, being the blessing of Melchizedek, which was enough and so therefore, Abram, he gives a tenth of everything to Melchizedek because they're God's resources. They're not his. And so we see a heart posture of contentment. Abram is content. He has hope in God most high, and he is therefore drawn near to God most high through the help of Melchizedek. He has also refused any portion of the plunder because he wouldn't allow anyone to say that a man, specifically the king of Sodom, where we'll find out later in Genesis, this Sodom is not a very nice place. It's not a very good place. And so Abram didn't want to be yoked with this man. He was determined that all of the credit for success should go to God and God alone. 
And so what does Abram do as the king of Sodom announces that he wants to bless him and give him all these riches? Abram says no, and he announces unashamedly his total dependence upon God Most High. Unashamedly, total dependence upon God Most High. El Elyon. And so Melchizedek, he truly blessed Abram as his priest and mediator in allowing him to draw near to God, as we see here in Genesis 14. So now, I said we'd get into more of this mysterious man, Melchizedek, through the biblical book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Specifically, we're going to be looking into Hebrews chapter 7. We could technically go through the whole book of Hebrews, but we're not going to do that today. Um, So if you want to flip your Bibles to that, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7. But I I want to remind you all that as we're going through this chapter of Hebrews, that this is all according to the pattern of Melchizedek that we've seen here in Genesis 14. This is not a separate sermon. This is to help advance the message that we're hearing here in Genesis 14. And so you may be confused at first, but the sole reason why we're talking so much about Jesus today is because Melchizedek points to King Jesus and the Messiah so much that it would be a disservice not to talk about these awesome truths today with you guys, honestly. It would be such a disservice not to mention these awesome truths about Jesus with you guys because of the life of Melchizedek. And so a, a little context about Hebrews 7 is like the, like the writer of a good detective story, the writer of Hebrew, he wants to draw out Melchizedek from the Old Testament that many might think insignificant. You know, we only get three verses in Genesis 14. Well, there's so much more that we can unpack, and that's what the writer of Hebrews wants to do with us. So he wants to bring Melchizedek into real prominence, to real importance. And these Christians at the time from a Jewish background that they're writing to, they were interested in Jesus as high priest. And he is our high priest. But it was hard for them intellectually to understand that idea because Jesus did not come from the priestly tribe of the, the Levites or the priestly family of Aaron. And so that was confusing for them. And so the writer to the Hebrews wanted to remove these intellectual problems that the Jewish Christians had with the gospel. And so these intellectual hang-ups, they kept them from continuing on into maturity. And so Melchizedek, being referenced here in Hebrews 7, is going to help them mature in their faith and actually draw near to God. And so let's look into Hebrews 7 in the first three verses. It says this, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High, met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings. And Abram, Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor ends of life, but resembling the son of God, he remains forever. He remains priest forever. Okay. We see... There's there's many speculations about who Melchizedek is, but there's two popular possibilities that I want to walk through with you on who Melchizedek is. You know, Matt, uh, earlier in this this message, I mentioned that some people even believe that this, this guy is Jesus in the flesh. But before we get into these possibilities, I want to preface. By no means do I believe that this should dictate the outcome of our theology. But Melchizedek is a means to produce faith And bring glory to the one that we worship, Jesus Christ. And so that is why we're going into this, is to help us bring even more glory to Jesus. So the first possibility is that Melchizedek very well could be the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus himself. Because they share so many similarities. Some of the similarities that we see in Genesis 14 and even here in Hebrews chapter 7 is that, hey, it says no father or mother. You know, we know Jesus had a mother in Mary. But he's also before time. He is God. And so this is just implying that maybe he has no, like, no creator himself. King of righteousness and peace. Jesus was king of righteousness and he was king of peace. Similarities. Jesus was also a, a, a priest and a king just as much as Melchizedek was. So we see a lot of those similarities here. But the second possibility, which personally, this is my favorite and most reliable conclusion about Melchizedek is that he is just a person and he's painting a picture of Christ. I lean heavily towards this conclusion because of the words in verse 3, resembling the Son of God. 
And the Greek word for this, I'll try to say it right, afoimoimenos, it means a facimil copy or model or being made similar to. And so I, I simply see that and I simply see Melchizedek as just a man being made similar to Jesus, foreshadowing the Messiah, foreshadowing our perfect priest mediator. And it even says simply that he had no record of genealogy, which simply just means that, hey, like, this is still just a man of divine mystery. He's a ball of mystery. We don't know where he came from, how he died, who's his mom or dad. And so that's just, just what the, the writer of Hebrews might have just been implying there. You know, obviously, I lean heavily towards Melchizedek just being a person, but I still want to emphasize that whether you believe he's Christ in the flesh or not, that this should not be something that dictates the outcome of our theology or ruins our theology. I think this is something that can build our faith in the Son of God. And so let's continue. We're going to continue into verses 15 through 28. And we're going to learn more about how this pattern of Melchizedek includes Jesus, the Son of God, and how we can learn more from Melchizedek, who paints that clear picture of our perfect mediator and Savior, Jesus. Hebrews chapter 7, 15. And this becomes clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, who did not become a priest based on a legal regulation about physical descent, but based on the power of an indestructible life. For it has been testified, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, reference to Psalm 110. So the previous command is annulled because it was weak and unprofitable. For the law perfected nothing, but a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. None of this happened without an oath. For others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath made by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Another reference to Psalm 110. Because of this oath, Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now many have become Levitical priests, since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. But because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. For this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day, as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. This is the word of the Lord. So I have five bullet points I want to take away from this according to the pattern of Melchizedek. And so God's declaration in verses 15 through 17 is that the Messiah, Jesus, belongs to another order of priesthood specifically referenced from Psalm 110. And we see clearly that Jesus' priesthood, it's not based upon the law or heredity, but upon the power of God and his endless life. And so what we can take away is that Jesus' priesthood is superior and eternal. Jesus' priesthood is superior and it's eternal. So Jesus showed that his priesthood is superior and eternal to the one of Aaron when he triumphed over death. And because we have a better priesthood and a better high priest, we also have a better hope. And can, in verse 19... Draw near to God through our perfect mediator, Jesus Christ. We can draw near to God through our perfect mediator, Jesus Christ. This is exactly what we need from a mediator between us, sinful humans, and God, perfect creator. To draw near to God. We were made to draw near to God, and Jesus stepped into place of mediation so we could simply do so. And this is exactly what Melchizedek did with Abram as he blessed him, that Abram may draw near to God. How much more will we draw near to God through our perfect mediator, the Son of God, Jesus Christ? In verses 20 through 22, we see that because of God's oath to the Messiah, there comes a better, there comes a guarantee of a better covenant. 
there comes a guarantee of a better covenant. So what I mean by that is that the old covenant had a mediator in Moses, but no one specifically to guarantee the people's side of the covenant. So therefore, they continually failed under the old covenant. But the new covenant was a better covenant, and it has a co-signer to guarantee it on our behalf. So therefore, the new covenant depends on what Jesus did, not on what we do. Jesus, our mediator and high priest, is the surety, and we are not. And so maybe you, you guys didn't know what the, the word surety means. I personally didn't until I started studying this passage. But a surety is a person who takes responsibility for another's performance of an undertaking. For example, they're appearing in court or the payment of a debt. Does that sound familiar? Like that sounds like Jesus. Jesus is our surety. He pays our debt. He takes our place of punishment. And the overwhelming superiority of Jesus Christ proves he is worthy and able to be our guarantee. He's able to be our co-signer of a better covenant. We see here in Hebrews chapter 7, 23 through 25, that an unchanging priesthood with Jesus as high priest means lasting salvation. With Jesus as high priest means lasting salvation. The priesthood under the law of Moses, it constantly changed. And so it was better or worse through the years depending on the character of the priest. But in contrast, Jesus has an unchangeable priesthood. Jesus, he will never die, and he is a permanent priesthood as our high priest and mediator. And when it says in this passage in verse 24 that he remains forever, the ancient Greek word has the idea of remaining as a servant, that Jesus remains as a servant. And so therefore, Jesus, he remains forever, and he remains as our servant, even after he ascended into heaven. You know, God came down in flesh as a humble servant, and Jesus is still a humble servant, loving us and caring for us, intending to our souls, and lavishing us with love and compassion. He's serving us in amazing ways. Even today, he's living. And the unchanging nature of Jesus' priesthood means that the salvation that he gives is also unchanging. It's also permanent, and it's also secure. And so because he is our high priest forever, he can save us forever. And the verb here, to save, it's used in absolutes. It's not used here in, in, in temporary measures. And this means that, that Christ will save us in the most comprehensive sense. He saves from all that humanity needs saving from. Think about all the sin in the world. Think about all the sin that you even suffer through every single day, that you even commit against the Lord. He saves you from all of that. All the wickedness, all the evil, all the greed, all the sexual immorality, Jesus saves you from. Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As, his, as our perfect high priest, he doesn't allow condemnation. You know, we observe from this passage that in Jesus, there is complete security of salvation. We can actually stand before God's throne of grace with boldness because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And we can draw near to God. And it says in verse 25 that Jesus, he always lives to intercede for us. That should strengthen our faith to know that Jesus prays for us and that he ever lives to pray for us. This is tremendous encouragement to anyone who feels like giving up. You know, I'm sure that all of us at one point have had thoughts of doubts, have had thoughts of decline and negativity, maybe even thinking about giving up on anything or choosing the wrong path. But you and I have a perfect mediator who perfectly intercedes for us. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is constantly defending us against every charge and every inch of condemnation through his intercession because he was the perfect sacrifice that gave his life for us on our behalf. That his life and sacrifice on the cross for us, it completely satisfied the judgment that we deserved. Like, let's let that change our hearts. And finally, in verses 26 through 28, we conclude that under the law of Moses, 
The priests were always men of weaknesses. But Jesus is the Son of God who has been perfected forever. He's the Son of God who has been perfected forever. Because he is a perfect high priest, he was able to offer up himself as a perfect sacrifice for our sin. Jesus is perfectly qualified to be our perfect high priest forever. Jesus is perfectly qualified to be our perfect high priest forever. And so this gospel truth about Jesus, it's all according to the pattern of Melchizedek. It's all according to that. And we get all of this beautiful truth of the gospel just through this mysterious man in Genesis 14 named Melchizedek. Praise the Lord. Like, praise the Lord that we can go so deep just from three verses. (laughs) We can actually go deeper in our relationship with the Lord through this man Melchizedek and through Jesus, our perfect high priest. And the cool thing is, is that the end of Hebrews 4 actually summarizes every inch of soul searching that we've been talking about in terms of drawing near to God as we look for a mediator between us and God to bridge that gap between sinful man and perfect creator. Let's look at it. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. You know, every one of us in this room has been yearning for Jesus Christ, the great high priest, according to the pattern of Melchizedek. And I'm sure to assume that maybe all of us at one point has been afraid of speaking to God, has been afraid of approaching him in prayer, has been afraid of approaching his throne and actually seeking grace for yourself. Because maybe you're hard hard on yourself, just like me. You know, maybe you're letting your sin tell you who you are. So maybe that's, that's dictating the possibility of you even seeking grace and approaching his throne. And I want you to know that everything that we've been talking about in Genesis 14, it's been pointing to Jesus Christ the whole time, being the answer to our yearnings and needs for our mediator. That we may now confidently approach the throne of grace with no fear, no fear to speak to the one who formed us all in our mother's womb. That we can actually pray. That we can actually like sit at Jesus' feet. That's a reality. That we can actually approach his throne with no fear. You know, I think of Isaiah in Isaiah 6. He said, woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips. He was afraid. He was terrified. That's because he was before the glory of the Lord. Well, we can now be before the glory of the Lord with no fear. We can draw near to God. And as Melchizedek blesses Abram, Abram draws near to God. And what does he do? He unashamedly proclaims his name of God Most High to the king of Sodom. And as Jesus blesses us with new life, we can draw near to God. And we can unashamedly praise his awesome and holy name. And I pray, my prayer is that we would walk out of this room doing that. That it would not end today. Can we grasp the reality of this truth? Can we grasp it together? Jesus is here. He's in this room with us right now. It's all about Jesus. Our praise is pleasing aroma to him. He's our perfect high priest and mediator. And he provides us complete access to the Father. And he leaves a wide open gate for anyone and everyone to access. And he is the gate. He even says himself, he is the gate. So that we may walk through it to finally receive the gift of grace and draw near to God. Let's grasp the reality of that. You know, I mentioned at the beginning of this teaching that being a resident advisor, an RA, 
It can sometimes be scary when placed in a role of mediation between two or more parties. I want you to know that Jesus Christ stepped into that role of mediation with no fear. He stepped into that role of mediation with no fear and perfect love for you. That you may be reconciled to God. We were made to draw near to God, and because of Christ, we actually can. And so, worship team, you can come back up now. I want to encourage you guys in this time of worship that we have, we have people who want to pray for you. Like, let's draw near to God. Let's worship him. Let's receive prayer. Let's pray to him. Jesus is in this room. He's with us right now. So I'm going to pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you're so good. Thank you that you're here. Thank you that you love us and that you want relationship with all of us. Every single person in this room you want relationship with. And I just thank you for the reality that we can draw near to you. That this, this isn't something that we can do on a Sunday service and leave it there. Like this is, this is something of a lifetime and forevermore that we can do. We can draw near to you. We can praise your awesome and holy name and be unashamed of who you are. We can boldly proclaim you. We can draw near to you with no fear, and we just thank you for that. And I just pray that each person in this room would draw near to you right now and forevermore. That we would see you as our worthy and awesome king, our high priest, our mediator. God, thank you that your scriptures point to you. It's all about you. The life of Melchizedek is all about you, Jesus. I just thank you that we can learn about you today, Jesus. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you that you're so awesome. I just pray that we would walk out of this room fearing you more and keeping your commands because you are worthy. I pray this all in your son's awesome name. Amen.